John chapter 1, verse 14. Some of you grabbed a bulletin and were probably really excited to see that Brother Matt was only preaching one verse. And some of you thought, no, I've known Brother Matt to preach a lot on one verse before, though. Amen. <laughs> we're going to look at John 1, 14 this morning. There are a lot of Christmas buzzwords that are thrown around sometimes, and I don't necessarily mean that in a disparaging way. I don't mean that we're insincere or that it's wrong at all to associate certain words with this time of year. Words like joy and peace, hope, and words like that, they're good. Many others that we kind of tend to associate with this time of year. But a couple of words that we probably don't normally associate with this time are some of the most important. And those are the words grace and the word truth. Look at John 1:14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John's account of the Nativity is quite different from other Gospels, isn't it? He doesn't mention Bethlehem. He doesn't mention Mary. There's no Joseph. There's no manger, no swaddling clothes, no shepherds. The wise men and their gifts are absent as is any angelic appearance. John was less concerned about the surrounding events than he was the significance of this event. Depending on how you translate it, John's nativity scene is really just all of five words, and the word became flesh. That's it. But those words set Christianity apart from every other religion. All other religions essentially teach the same thing. They may use different lingo. They may have different terms. They may have a little different form or fashion. They may have their own rule book. But they all teach in one way or another what a man must do to please God or what a man can do to become God. Biblical Christianity is exactly the opposite. Instead of teaching what work you must do in order to please God, the Bible teaches that you cannot do enough work to please God. And so true Christianity does not teach how a man can become God but rather teaches how God became a man. And that's what John focuses on to open his gospel. Over the first 13 verses, John majestically describes Jesus before his birth in Bethlehem as the eternal Word of God, as the Creator, as the life, as the light. And then we get to verse 14, and we see that this Word, this Creator, this life, this light, became a man filled with grace and truth. When we see this title in verse 14 of the Word, it immediately throws us back to verse 1 of this gospel where John says, "...in the beginning was the Word." And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a divine title for Jesus Christ. And John used it to begin his whole gospel. 
because he wanted his reader to understand the, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He just continuously always just was. He has always been God. But by using this title, The Word, John appealed to a pretty wide audience because it meant something different to different groups. The Greek philosophers of the time used this title or this term, the word, to describe their abstract idea uh, concerning the source of the universe. It was kind of their uh, philosophical idea of the reason and the reality behind everything. Well, John explains in verse 3 that the word is the creator of the universe. But now in verse 14, he teaches, if you're a Gentile, if you're a Greek, he teaches you that the very reason, the very source behind this universe is not some abstract idea to philosophize about, but a personal being who should be worshipped. This word became flesh like a playwright who directs and stars in his own play. The author of the universe stepped into his creation to play the leading role as Jesus Christ. That was significant for a Gentile mind. What would a Jewish person think of when they heard the word? They would immediately think back to the Old Testament and the countless times the word of the Lord came to a prophet. The word of the Lord appeared to the prophet Isaiah, Jeremiah. And the word would come to, to a prophet to reveal God's will, to explain more about God. And so John was teaching the Jews that this man, Jesus Christ is the complete expression and revelation of God. He came to fully explain God, to reveal Him completely to mankind. The eternal divine creator of the universe, the Word, became flesh. He wasn't always flesh. He was always deity. But he was made flesh. He became flesh. And when that happened, when he became a man, he didn't stop being God. I've read this quote before and I love it. His humanity did not diminish his deity, nor did his deity minimize his humanity. He was fully God and fully man. And he willingly chose to come and live among us. And that's what John says, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And there's, the, there's several things that we could point out with this word dwelt. I'm going to focus on one thing this morning. One thought about this word dwelt is that it, it does literally mean to, to pitch a tent, to tabernacle, to encamp. It's specifically the idea of a temporary residence as opposed to a permanent residence. If you've ever gone camping, Camping's great, but you don't want to stay there forever. That's the idea of this word is that it's temporary. It's a it's tabernacle. It's a it's pitching a tent. 
And one thing that, that reminds us of is something in the Old Testament. What were the Jews instructed to build so that God would come and dwell among them? A tabernacle. This, sometimes we read it as the tent of meeting. In Exodus 25, verse 8, we read, God tells Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And when they built the tabernacle, Exodus 40 and verse 34 says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In the person of Jesus Christ, God in all his glory was dwelling in our midst. Just as God chose to dwell among the Israelites, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And just like the Israelites witnessed God's glory descend and fill the tabernacle, look at what John says next. We beheld his glory. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. But what does that mean? What does glory refer to? We throw the word around a lot, right? But, but what are we talking about? Well, some of it surely has to do with, with brightness and radiance and, and majestic splendor. We read from Luke 2 earlier, on the night of Christ's birth, we read that the glory of, of the Lord shone around the shepherds when the angel appeared to them, and they were afraid. This this shiny, bright, radiant splendor was almost more than man can handle. Those men were greatly afraid. Do you remember when Moses asked God to show me your glory? You remember what God told Moses? In Arkansas terms, he said, you can't look directly at it, but when I pass by, you can see the back part of it. You can see the trailing parts of the glory, but you can't look face on. No man can do that. And when Moses is hid in the cleft of the rock there as the Lord passes by, and he only sees the trailing parts of his glory, it is so brilliant that when Moses comes down the mountain, his face is shining. And that was just from the, the back part of God's glory. God's glory definitely has something to do with this brightness and majesty do you remember what John and Peter and James were able to witness one time during the life of Jesus? We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus took those three disciples kind of alone up a mountain, and Jesus was transfigured in all his glory. He was brilliant. He was radiant. And I think John's definitely thinking back to that moment. But there's a lot more to God's glory than shininess. I want you to look at Exodus chapter 34. Just because something's bright and shiny doesn't mean it's God's glory. What else does this entail then? What else do we mean when we say God's glory? I love what one author says. He says that God's glory is the sum of his attributes. That means it's everything about him. It's everything about him. It's who he is. I want to back up and, and let's read in chapter 33 in Exodus here 
a few of the verses that I referenced a moment ago in chapter 33. Look at verse 18. And he said, that's Moses, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cliff of the rock, and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. So this happened when Moses asked God to show me your glory, and this whole scene of God passing by with Moses being protected. But I want you to look down at verse 5 through 8 of chapter 34, and notice what else happens when God descended upon Mount Sinai. It wasn't just this um, brilliant light passing by Moses, but I want you to notice that God then lists many of his wonderful attributes for Moses. Look at verse 5 of chapter 34. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So God did radiantly pass by Moses, but God also declared his name to Moses. That just means who he is. He explained himself to Moses. He detailed himself to Moses. And by doing so, he gave this amazing list of attributes of the kind of God he is, of his nature, of his quality. God's glory is brilliance, but it's also everything about him. And so when John said, we beheld the glory of Jesus, not only is he thinking about that moment when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he saw in Jesus Christ every attribute of God. Every single day that John was with Christ, he saw the mercy of God, the grace of God, the patience of God, the love of God, the compassion of God, the forgiveness of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, all walking around in a man who was the Word. God became a man, and man beheld His glory. God's glory walked around this earth for 33 plus years and it was glory that only Jesus could demonstrate because notice what John says back in John chapter 1 verse 14 about halfway through the verse we beheld his glory what kind of glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father 
This is glory that nobody else has, that nobody else is, is privy to, that nobody else can reveal. Because Jesus is the unique, one of a kind, one and only, only begotten of God. This word for only begotten was a, an interesting word in the first century. It was used when a, when a family had just one child. That child was their one and only. Not their firstborn. Their only born. Their only begotten. And so nobody could ever demonstrate God's glory to us in this same way because nobody else is like Jesus. He's the only one. And John ended this verse by listing two of these amazing attributes of God, parts of God's glory, if we can call it that. He says that it was, or that he was full of grace and truth. We talked about grace last week. Unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. Truth is just simply the unveiled reality of how things actually are. The opposite of lies, the opposite of falsehood. And so Jesus Christ was the embodiment of both grace and truth with every single breath he took. When he was laying in a manger, he was full of grace and truth. When he was preaching the kingdom of God, he was full of grace and truth. When he was hanging on the cross, he was full of grace and truth. Always. Unfortunately, I think often in our world, even among Christians, we tend to sacrifice one or the other, don't we? Maybe we stand up for truth, which is good. But if we do so in an ungracious way, that's not the way Jesus did it. There may be truth, but no grace. Or maybe grace is shown, which is also good. But if we fail to stand up for the truth, then in that case there's grace, but there's no truth. But listen, grace and truth are not mutually exclusive. Grace and truth go together. One author said it this way, grace without truth would be deceitful and truth without grace would be condemning. And in the person of Jesus Christ, grace and truth collided perfectly. They coordinate perfectly because the truth is that we are all sinners. And our sin separates us from the holy God. Each one of us should be headed for an eternal punishment in hell but that's not all the truth, is it? There's more truth. There is truth that exposes grace. It is true that we're all sinners, but it's also true that the Word became flesh. It's true that God became a man and took our place. And if we humble ourselves before Him in repentance and faith, he will give us His amazing grace. He will forgive us our sins. He will save our souls forever. So truth and grace go together because of Jesus. And therein lies true salvation's plan. Nothing we could ever do could ever elevate us up to God's level as all the other world religions some way or another teach. There's no amount of work, no amount of suffering, no amount of pleasure, no amount of, of joy, wisdom, whatever, you can't get there 
But since you couldn't get there, God came here. It's the opposite of every other religion. But it's the truth. And it's the grace of God. Knowing everything that he would eventually face. The eternal word. Willingly. Stepped out of glory. And became flesh. Does that bring joy? You better believe it does. Does that bring peace? You better believe it does. Does that bring hope? You better believe it does. So those buzzwords are fine. Don't forget grace and truth. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, that's our prayer at North Bryant. Would you stand? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for what Jesus Christ did for us. As we understand more about it, we're in awe, and yet we understand that it is unfathomable that you became flesh to die for us. We cannot fully comprehend your love and your grace, but help us to just be humble and thankful. We ask forgiveness of our sins, Lord, and we ask for your spirit to have his, have his way in this invitation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.